Hi, good evening. Thank you for joining us again for Relational Theology number 11, uh, entitled The Battle for Truth. Turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 24. We're going to talk about the end of the age or the last days. Let's pray, Lord. Open up your word to us. Uh, we're dependent on you and your spirit to lead us into truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 24 from verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Just so you're aware, there's actually three questions that they're asking there. They're talking about the, Jesus had said something about the destruction of the temple, which was the destruction of Jerusalem as a whole, but especially the temple. And then Jesus' return, the sign of your coming. Uh, they could have met the coming of the fullness of the kingdom, but they're tied together as we talked about it in the kingdom. And then the end of the age. And so those three are interwoven in the rest of this chapter. And that's where a lot of speculation comes from. But let's continue to read. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled. For all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. And these are the beginning of sorrows or the birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound... The love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down or take anything out of his house. Let him, him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and are nursing babies in this time. Seems here he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in AD 70. And he's basically saying it's such a bad situation. They need to be ready so they can flee. Pray that your flight will not be in winter on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, and no, nor will ever shall be. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand, Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner room, do not believe it. For if, as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, 
so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. But you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the door. Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore. For you not, do not know what hour your Lord is coming. There's a lot of speculation regarding the end times. Uh, as we just read in verse 36. We don't know. But of this day and hour no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven. But my Father only. And so rather than get caught up trying to look at all the signs and all the indications, I want us to see that we have a mandate. Two things. First is, don't be deceived. First thing Jesus said when answering the question is, take heed that no one deceives you. And verse 24, false prophets, false Christs will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Over in Mark chapter 13 and verse 5 says the same thing. Again, they asked him the question and Jesus answered, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying I am he and will deceive many. So the first mandate is don't be deceived. We're going to talk about that later. But the second mandate is watch. Watch. Word in the Greek means take heed. Be alert. Be on guard. Again, Matthew 24 and verse 42. Watch therefore. He says all this stuff and then his commandment is watch therefore. For you don't know what hour the Lord is coming. Chapter 25 and verse 13. Watch therefore. For you neither know the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Again, back over to Mark 13. Well, he seems to record this from verse 32. He says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It's like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, 
For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. In case you haven't got it, we have this mandate to watch, to don't be deceived and to be on guard. Acts chapter 20, as Paul is talking with the leaders in Ephesus, uh, just before he goes to Jerusalem at his last trip and saying he won't see them again, uh, in chapter 20, in verse uh, 28, therefore take heed to yourselves, that's the same word, watch to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and shepherds. God has purchased with his own blood. Verse 31, therefore watch or guard and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn you day and night with tears. So there, his last thing he was saying to the leaders was be on guard. Watch out. And then over in 2 Timothy. And Second uh, Timothy chapter 4. And verse, from verse uh, 2, Paul writing to Timothy says, Preach the word, <clears throat> be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to to fables, but you be watchful in all things. So that mandate, very clear mandate, don't be deceived and be on guard, be alert. was not only Jesus, but it was repeated by the uh, apostles to the church later on. Very clear mandate, don't be deceived, be on guard, be alert. Why? Bottom line is that we're in a battle for truth. Satan is a deceiver, a liar. The Bible's very clear on that, but he's also the ruler of this world. Yet Jesus' kingdom is advancing. It's growing in the face of opposition. The parables of the leaven, leavening the whole lump, the mustard seed that grows into one of the greatest of trees. Uh, it's advancing, but the devil doesn't want to give up. So you have the, the ruler of this world, his kingdom, and the the... Uh, breaking in of the kingdom of God that's expanding, it's growing, and the devil's fighting it. And so that expansion faces an opposition of the devil. So while we're advancing, we're also guarding. What are we guarding? Good question. Two things. We're guarding the gospel. It's the entrance to salvation, to restore relationship with God. It's the entrance to the new covenant. And so it's important that we understand that we don't accept another gospel. That's what the book of Galatians is all about. How dare you accept another gospel? If someone comes with another gospel, let him be cut off, let him be accursed. And so there is a uh, responsibility to be on guard, to watch that we guard the gospel from 
those who would change it, those who would make it different, those who would add to or subtract from <clears throat> the good news, not because we have a certain doctrinal belief, but because it's the entrance to salvation. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It's not like, okay, we have to have right doctrine, but it's this is how you come into relationship. The gospel. But it's, it's, not only do we not accept another gospel, but we also have to be careful not to lose our first love. Revelation 2.4. The word to the church at Ephesus was, you've lost your first love. How amazingly terrible that we enter into this covenant relationship and then we lose our first love and we don't guard the truth that, we, that we've come into this relationship. Uh, that we're in this covenant with the King of Kings. And if we lose our first love, we've lost everything. If we, our focus becomes something else. So we're guarding the gospel, which is the interest of salvation, not accepting other gospels, but also not losing our first love, our focus. Jesus is the head. He's the, the bridegroom of the bride. He's the one we're in love with. So we have to protect that in the face of this opposition, this battle. But it's not just the gospel, it's also the kingdom. The kingdom is the truth about Jesus and his rule. It's about his authority. Uh, the revelation he's given us of God. He said, he, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So there's something of this revelation of who God really is. There's something of this uh, truth about Jesus and his, the authority of his kingdom breaking in that has to be guarded. One of the things Jesus said in uh, John 18 was that I come to bear witness to truth. And so there's something about guarding the truth of the gospel and the kingdom that's imperative because the devil's opposition is to try and stop people from entering the kingdom. It's try, try, to try and stop people from coming into relationship with God. It tries to uh, distort or in some way the gospel so that people don't actually get saved. It makes it uh, being added to the church rather than being added to Jesus. Some churches that teach catechism and if you pass a certain class, you're added to the church and that's considered salvation because you actually passed a class and you joined the church. They've changed the gospel. And so we have this mandate. We're in this battle. And so we have to be on guard. So I want to encourage you. We're on guard for the relationship that's been restored, but also the rulership that's been restored. Those are the things we started with at the beginning. But we need to be aware that the devil has a strategy. The Bible says that we're not ignorant of the devil's schemes or the strategy of the devil, but I think often we are. I think most of the church is. And we're totally unaware of the strategies of the devil. So what are they? I want to show you from Scripture and then we're going to take a look at history. The first strategy of the devil is religion. It's a counterfeit. It's a substitute. It's a, I can make myself better. 
I don't need the gospel. It's an adding to or subtracting from. It it's, makes the religion or tradition of more importance. Matthew 15, 6 says, uh, Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition, or you've nullified the word of God by your tradition. Tradition can actually be a deceptive thing. And we'll get into that in a, in a little bit. But Matthew 16, verse 6, Jesus says, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were the religious people. And there's a leaven that slowly begins to impact the whole lump. Just like the kingdom of God impacts the lump of the world. If we're not careful, the leaven of religion can begin to impact us. And then back over in John chapter 8 and verse 44. Chapter 8 is where Jesus talks about truth. You'll know truth and the truth will set you free. And he's talking with the, uh, the Pharisees about that truth. And they're trying to kill him because he speaks the truth. Uh, he says, and uh, verse 44, he goes on and says, you're of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. He speaks a lie. He speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So there is this uh, strategy of the devil, which is religion, and we'll see that in a little bit. But I just want you to see it's actually demonically inspired as a counterfeit for the kingdom and for relationship with God. Basically, we can make ourselves better if we do all the right things. But there's a second strategy of the devil, and that's philosophy. Back in Matthew 15, where Jesus said that of your tradition, it nullifies the word of God. He goes on and he says, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So we teach as doctrines. We have this idea, man's thinking, that we teach as if it were the word of God. Uh, so we teach as doctrines the commandments or the, or the ideas of men. Over in Colossians, and in chapter 2, from verse 4, it says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ, as you therefore have received Jesus Christ the Lord. So walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you or rob you or take you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. There is this thing that uh, we say man's reasoning, man's thoughts are equal with the Bible and we, we present these ideas that aren't necessarily biblical. 1 Timothy 4.1 now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits or deception 
and doctrines of demons, not speaking uh, speaking lies and hypocrisy. So there's something in the end of this deception that comes from philosophy. And we'll talk about that again in a little bit. But the strategy of the devil are not just religion of philosophy, but we see those impacting and, and resulting in an anti-Christian society. If you were to study the three beasts of Revelation 13 to 17, you see religion and man's reasoning or philosophy coming together to form a society that is set against Christianity. And again, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But it also results, the strategy of the devil, is persecution of Christians. It's a persecution of believers. Chapter 24, verse 9 of Matthew, where we started, And they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. They'll, they'll deliver you up to tribulation. Again, Mark 13 and verse 13 says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. So there is a persecution. And then one more. Second Timothy and, verse, and chapter 3. From verse 12, he says, Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Evil men and impostors, counterfeiters, will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And as a result, you'll suffer persecution. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So we see that the devil has a strategy. He has ingredients in that strategy. And while they don't all happen in a specific order. They're, they're happening all the time. There, there has been, historically, a different emphasis. So I want to look at the battle for truth through the 2,000 years of history. That's a big order, big task to do. So I'm obviously not going to cover everything. I'm going to hit some of the high points. But I just want you to see how this has played out, and it will come into play in our next semester. So the battle for truth through 2,000 years. Obviously, the early church expected Jesus' return in their generation. And it obviously did happen. They expected him to come. When he says in Matthew that uh, before you all pass away, these things will happen. They expected not just the destruction of Jerusalem would happen, but that Jesus coming in the fulfillment of his kingdom and the Kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. That fulfillment of the kingdom would happen at Jesus returns and it would be the end of the age. But obviously that wasn't what happened. And so what we see looking back at history is the first great opposition to the church was religion. Now they faced some persecution of government, uh, 
and that's always been the case, but the first great opposition was religion. When Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire around 300 AD, uh, things began to change. Official means that it became advantageous to be part of this religion. And if anyone who's read anything about that period understand that there was all these other religions that kind of got uh, absorbed into Christianity and it became very, uh, very uh, different, uh, very hierarchical in structure, very uh, uh, ceremonial. But it also in included a whole lot of uh, other things that happened. Uh, the word we use is corruption. We think of corruption meaning uh, financial mismanagement, but it's when something that is pure becomes tainted with something else. It, it becomes corrupt. And so this pure religion became corrupt as other things were added. And that continued. So by 600 AD or so, you see uh, the Pope is becoming equal with Scripture. And so what the Pope says becomes equal with Scripture. And uh, then th that increased authority that the Pope had, or the Church had, led to increased corruption. And what we often in history call the Dark Ages, if you go back and study that, you'll see that increased corruption resulted in the Inquisition. Inquisition was trying to make purity, and so there was this group of inquisitors who were uh, uh, decided upon or identified by the church, and they'd go into a place, and people would make uh, accusations about people, and the inquisitors would then torture them until they confessed. Now think about that in light of the human heart, and if I run a business, and John Smith runs a business that's similar, and I want to put him out of business, I go make an accusation about him being a devil worshiper or something, and the inquisitors take him into a dungeon, and they torture him until he confesses. Now their belief is that they're never wrong, and therefore they can't believe that he didn't isn't a devil worshiper, so they torture him until he either dies or confesses. Now add to that a few years later where you can slip the inquisitors some money to go after your competitors or people you don't like. And so it became incredibly corrupt. About the same time you get the, the church... Uh, instituting something called indulgences. Their belief in purgatory, that people went to purgatory, that you could literally buy people's way out of purgatory early. And uh, by giving, the Pope was actually raising money for to build St. Peter's Basilica. And so it was selling these indulgences. There were two things that the indulgence did. It either bought someone's way out of purgatory early. This is one of the things Martin Luther uh, reacted against but it could also buy you forgiveness in advance for sin because it was the church that forgave sin. It wasn't God. And so if you gave money in advance, you could get 
a indulgence to sin. Now that that's pretty bad, but what happened is as the Pope grew in power, the Pope also determined church doctrine, not the scripture. And so a number of things happened. You went to God through the priest, confession. You couldn't talk to God, you had to talk to the priest. Uh, you hear from God through the priest. The priests were the only ones with the Bible. Uh, at that point, most of the Bibles were in Latin, translated into Latin, and most people didn't read it or understand it. Most people were not educated, and the church didn't want people to be educated. Just the opposite. They wanted them to be dependent. In fact, they eventually started a belief called transubstantiation, that the bread and the, the uh, wine literally becomes the body and blood of Christ. And it's the elements of the communion that save someone. So now the church has exclusive hold on the elements of communion, the elements of salvation. You have to come to them because they have the real body and blood of Jesus because it changes to that when they bless it because the Pope said it did. Not because the Bible said it did. And it, and it didn't happen before 1000 AD. But now you have this church with this incredible authority to determine doctrine and then from there to excommunicate people. Now, in Christian Europe at the time, excommunication meant, one, you cannot partake of communion, so you have no salvation, but two, nobody who is part of the church would do business with you. You were excommunicated, not just from going to a church meeting, but from Christianity. And because you obviously can't be saved if you can't have communion. So you're a heathen. Nobody will do business with you. You have no life, no way to live, no way to to get by. So excommunication was an incredible authority that the church had. And you know the old saying that uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's what we see happen as we look at uh, this the hold of religion in the Catholic Church over much of what was Christianity. But then we come to the breaking away from the authority of the church from about 1200 to 1600 what in Northern Europe is called the Reformation, which really was a return to the authority of Scripture. It was breaking away from this corrupt authority that the church had. It started with the belief that the Bible's for everyone. So guys would begin to translate the Bible into the language of the people. And they would stress education so that people could read it. Men like Huss and Tyndale were killed for translating the Bible. They were killed by the church who didn't want people to have the Bible because they would lose their authority. And that's exactly what happened with Martin Luther when he put his 95 Thesis on the, the door of Wittenberg Chapel in uh, 1517. He said, basically, the church doesn't have this authority. And when brought before the political leaders who were controlled by the church in the Diet of Worms in 1521, he basically said, show me from Scripture why I'm wrong. Here I stand. I can do no else. 
So the uh, the breaking away from the the authority of the church in the north of Europe that what we call the Reformation was really a returning to the authority of Scripture. But that also, with that time, there was a breaking away of the authority of the church or religion in the south of Europe, but with it comes the rise of the second great opposition, which is philosophy. See, while the breaking away from the authority of the church in the north is called the Reformation, the breaking away from the authority of the church in the south is called the Renaissance. And it was really a return to Greek philosophy. Reading a quote from a, an article on Renaissance says, Renaissance is a French word meaning rebirth. The, this period is called this because at this time people started taking an interest in the learning of ancient Greece and Rome. They also increasingly turned to the classics to find answers to the problems of life led many to use re reason to understand the world. So the basic premise of philosophy is that we know truth through human reason. And that's not tied to scripture. So that's why we say in the north the Reformation was returned to the authority of the, the uh, scripture of the Bible. In the south it was a breaking away, but it was a return to pre-Christian Greek philosophy. The philosophy of Plato Plato and Aristotle uh, that really began to be uh, accepted, but more than that, the, the belief that, that uh, human reasoning is enough to lead us to truth. We don't need the God of the Bible. In fact, when it comes down to it, Aristotle believed that only what is natural is real. And so he says only what we can know through the five senses is actually real. He was act actually had a very anti-supernatural worldview, which became our Western culture scientific worldview. The presupposition is that that supernatural stuff doesn't exist. Only what's natural is real. And therefore, everything can be known through science, through human reasoning, through research, what we can see. There's nothing beyond that. But there was also a, another shift that took place at that time and that edu education became much more Greek, meaning academic, rather than practical. Prior to that, it was much more uh, tutor, disciple directed. And people learned from a master and they learn by doing because it had a practical approach. But all of a sudden you have this uh, academic approach that takes it away from the practical and makes it much more Greek. Now there's a whole lot more we can look at that because if you follow that through, you'll see the impact that that has, has, has on our society the anti-Christian beliefs. And we'll, we'll get to that in a few minutes. So that brings me to the, the question. What does the end look like? From the Bible, what does the end look like? Four things I want to share with you. It looks like one, darkness getting darker. An anti-Christ spirit 
rule society. Values are turned upside down. Anti-Christian values are not just tolerated, but they're celebrated. Second Thessalonians and uh, chapter 2 from verse 3. Says that no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I am still with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining him and will be revealed in his own time, for the mystery or the hidden truth of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken away. When the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Another story. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So there is something there. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. From verse uh, 1 to 8. Know that in the last days perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This is the values of an anti-Christ society. The values of the ruler of this world having a form of godliness but denying its power. Two Peter, chapter two, from verse one. But there were also false prophets among the people, and even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even the denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom a way of truth will be blasphemed. The way of truth. By covenants, covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time the judgment has not been idle and the destruction does not slumber. And then one more. 1 John. Chapter 4. From verse 1 to 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Son, the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. And you... You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And they are of the world, because they speak as the world, and the world hears them. 
So he's actually talking about, in context, John is referring to the uh, philosophy of, of Gnosticism that was already prevalent then. And Gnosticism was a belief that you they had a special knowledge. And bottom line is that they believed that that the flesh didn't matter for anything. It didn't really exist. And so the flesh was evil, but the spirit was good. And it didn't matter what your flesh did. It only mattered what your spirit did. And therefore, you could do anything. You could do any kind of sin. And you could say, I, I've never sinned. Because I've only sinned in the flesh, not in the spirit. Well, the result of that is that they said, Jesus could not have come in the flesh because the flesh is evil. Therefore, Jesus never came in the flesh. He was a spirit walking around. And that's what he's referring to. But already, that spirit of Antichrist was in the world. It's changing the gospel, changing the, the kingdom. Uh, and so, what we see in the end time, is that happening? And we, you can see this happening today. Where things are not only tolerated, they're celebrated. Antichrist, 50 years ago, values that were celebrated as being Christian are now ridiculed and things that weren't even uh, thought to, to be talked about are now not only tolerated, but celebrated in our culture. And so we're in that season of darkness getting darker. But the second part of that, what is happening, is not only is darkness getting darker, but those who believe and declare the truth are hated by the world and persecuted. Again, back in Matthew 24, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Why? Because you don't agree with their values. Because you have a different truth. Truth of God's word. 2 Timothy 3 that we just read, if we go on farther, as we read earlier, verse 12, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. There is a spirit of deception that is affecting the world. And then again, back over to 1 Peter, where we had just read, but chapter 4 and verse 12. Behold, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happening to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake as of Christ's suffering. When his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. So those who believe and declare the truth in this anti-Christ value society, those who believe and declare the truth are hated by the world and persecuted. And we see this happening today. When a athlete simply quotes the Bible and gets blasted, that's just the beginning. We see this happening where those who declare, those who hold to the truth of God's word, are uh, hated and persecuted, not just disagreed with 
But there is a hatred that happens as the devil is pushing his values as a god of this world. And then as a result of that, the third thing that the end looks like is that many will fall away or turn away. Again, back to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceptive spirits and doctrines of demons. You believe that someone would actually say, oh yeah, I believe demons more. I'm going to turn from the truth. No, there is a subtle, slow undermining of truth that begins to lead us away and then pretty soon there's a persecution that takes place and find it people find it too hard and they turn away just because I can't handle this anymore. Something's got to be wrong. Again, uh, 2 Timothy 4. We read it earlier, earlier. But for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires... Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. According to their own desires, when sin enters our heart and we don't turn from it, our desires then cause us to have ears that look for someone who will justify what we believe. Justify my sin. And so I turn away from truth. And as a culture becomes more anti-Christian and the values become more anti-Christ and they move more and more into celebrating things that the Bible doesn't and the pressure on a generation tied in with their own sin that they haven't turned from because the gospel has been changed then it's easy to see that they then find people, those who will agree with them, who will say, my lifestyle is okay. And they'll turn from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So I believe that if the church doesn't guard the gospel and the truth, many, many more will fall away. I believe that's one of the keys so not only does darkness getting darker, not only are those who believe and declare the truth hated by the world and persecuted, not only will many fall away, but the good news is that there is a continued advancement of the kingdom. The con kingdom continues to grow and continues to advance. When things are shaking, many people turn to the rock. They're looking for something of stability. They're looking for something of... And if the church will preach the gospel, I think we'll see a, a tremendous in-gathering at this last season of people. Even while those in, quote, the church are falling away, there'll be an in-gathering of people who are coming to Jesus. And so I think that's a, a, good, a good thing. So there's hope there as well. We need to be guarding. So let me conclude with this. My challenge us as believers and us as leaders. Let me give you an illustration first. 
if you ever been to the uh, Brazil, the mouth, the Amazon River in Brazil, huge river. It just uh, it sends more water into the uh, Atlantic Ocean than the next largest, next five largest rivers in the world combined. It's amazing. The mouth of the Amazon River is 320 kilometers wide. Now there's some islands in there and there's some uh, where silt has gathered, but the largest open section is 80 kilometers. Think about that. It's a river that is an open section. There's, there's no shore for 80 kilometers. There's no anything. There's no island. There's no nothing. The actual mouth of the river is 320 kilometers, but the uh, largest section is 80. The flow of the river at that point is uh, averages about three kilometers per hour. And so it, in flood season, it's a little bit higher, sometimes a little bit less, but about three. And so here's the, the illustration. A man leaves the south shore of the Amazon River in a boat and goes out to go fishing. And he gets out far enough that he can't see the shore anymore. And he sits there and fishes, but it appears to him that he's in a lake. Because nothing moves. Without a reference point, everything just seems exactly the same. The problem is, after a full day of fishing, 10 or 12 hours, he would find himself 30 kilometers out to sea. So when the end of his day is up, he pulls his rod in, heads his boat south to go back to the shore, and there's no shore because he's out in the middle of the ocean. So what is my challenge to believers and leaders? One, don't be deceived. I want to tell you this. Gradualism is still deception. Just because it happens slowly doesn't mean it isn't deception. We gradually begin to accept things. How in the world do we accept abortion? New Zealand and some states in the U.S. just recently have passed full-term abortion laws that a child can be killed at the day of birth. New Zealand and the U.S. are considered nations founded on a Christian principle. How did we get to that place? where we're willing to kill children. It didn't happen overnight. It happened with an acceptance of philosophy. I could tell you how. It'd take me too long. But it was an acceptance of philosophy as a foundation. It was a scientific worldview led to the theory of evolution that we take God out of the picture and this is what makes sense. Therefore, there's no value in life. There's no dignity in human life. There, there's no purpose in life. Therefore, whatever feels good must be good. And so there's this whole free love thing, but we don't want any consequences for that. So we do away with the, the consequences of conception. And we get to the point where we kill innocent, helpless children in Christian nations. We find ourselves 
being swept out to sea and not realizing it? Do you accept sex outside of marriage? It's the value of our culture. It has been uh, indoctrinated to a whole generation. We have a whole generation of young people who have no conception other than that. The problem is once they accept that, then they have to stop the conviction of the Holy Spirit that says it's sin. So they turn away from the truth and they find those who will speak to their itching ears because of their own desire. And we've got away from declaring the truth or the acceptance of homosexuality. Or how about this? The acceptance of greed. Do we accept greed? Do we boast about it? A Christian leader boasts about, boasting about becoming the first billionaire Christian leader. What a hundred years ago would not have been tolerated is now celebrated. The Bible says more about greed than it does about homosexuality. Yet have we turned away from the word so much? So what am I saying? Don't be deceived. Gradualism is deception. If we don't aggressively anchor ourselves in the word of God, we will slowly but steadily be swept down river and out to sea. That's the expectation of what the Bible says if we're not careful. I encourage you, aggressively anchor yourself in the Word of God. Read the Bible. Teach the Bible as God gave it, without filters, without submitting to itching ears, without tying into this thing that people won't come if I don't tell them what they want to hear. Your responsibility is not to get people to come. Your responsibility is to guard the truth and the gospel. Deep breath. I'm getting stirred up. We need to recognize that our mandate is to not be deceived and to watch, to guard, to be ready. So we've reached the, uh, the end of semester one of this class. Hopefully we've laid a foundation of uh, biblical theology from a relational basis. And if nothing else, given you an outline that you can then fill in as you read and study the word. Uh, hopefully that's been accomplished. Uh, I'm sure I haven't answered all your questions because that's what semester two is about. We'll apply this foundation to many of the theological questions that people have. Going back to what does the Bible actually say? And so that's uh, semester two. And uh, we'll actually get to that in September here at Redemption Hills. Uh, we decided we had originally planned to take a break and do this, but I'd really like to do that when we can all get back together. So uh, if you need to, go back through the class, make sure that foundation is built, and then we'll uh, continue with this in September been a delight, been a joy for me.
God bless you. Amen.